Do you have your Bible? Yes, good. I see many of you reaching for your Bibles. John chapter 11, and we're in a story this morning uh, that is just going to blow our hair back. This story is designed by John the way he tells it, like a high drama. I mean, it is like going to a Greek play. Uh, As a matter of fact, this story, unlike many of the other stories that he tells, this particular one takes place in three acts. Act one. The delay. Let's pick it up. Chapter 11, verse 1. This is now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister, her sister Martha. Now this was the Mar- Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now that story, by the way, is not in John. That's in the other synoptics. So he's reminding you, you already have this story. I'm filling in the blanks. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. Now, notice he does not say here that he's not going to die. He said it's not going to result in death. No, it is for the glory of God. It's for God's glory so that um, God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was Two more days. That's what you do. When you hear your friend is sick, you just stay. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea, which is where Bethany was. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, don't you remember in chapter 10? Like a short while ago, the Jews, the Pharisees, there tried to stone you to death. And yet you're going back. And Jesus answered, are, are, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus Lazarus, has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, uh, he'll get better. Let him sleep. (laughs) They're sharp. They're sharp. Right? They got it. And Jesus had been speaking of his death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Of course they did. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Geniuses. <laughs> and I, I put that in there. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we may die with him. <laughs> right? Super great faith. Now, the first act here is the delay. Why is Jesus delaying? There are all kinds of reasons why. Jesus might be delaying. The first reason why Jesus is delaying is probably because a lot of the Jews believed in a sort of legendary belief that the soul or the spirit stays with the body three days. And then after three days, on the fourth day, it departs to go off to paradise. Or if it's an unrighteous person, they go off to Sheol, which is the word for hell. But they believe that that spirit or that soul would hover around that body and wait in the grave just in case someone were to come and resuscitate the person. So it takes one day to get to Jesus. He says, I'm going to wait two. And then he, it takes one day for him to get back to Bethany to do this miracle. And no one can understand why he's waiting. And he is delaying intentionally 
And the key or the purpose is in verse 5, where he says, This is happening so that God may reveal his glory through the Son. This is happening so that he may bring glory to the Son. And remember what we said in week 1. When God brings glory to the Son, those who see it believe. And in verse 15, he says, I'm glad that uh, I wasn't there. To heal him and keep him from this death. Because what I'm going to do is going to reinforce and inspire your faith. So they are going to see the glory of the one and only. And when they see the glory of the one and only, it is going to inspire their faith. That's the purpose for doing it. Now, what is, what is the reason why God allows delays in our life? I want to tell you this. We've said it before. We'll say it again. You'll hear me say it a hundred times. Delays are not denials. Just because God delays a request or something you ask him for in your life does not mean that he has denied your request, okay? So you may feel like you're in a very long delay. Whatever it is you're trusting God for, whatever it is you're getting up every single day and just getting on your knees and praying and trusting him for, you may feel like this valley of the shadow of death that you are in seems very, very long. But that, you are still in a holding pattern. You are still in a delay until the answer is no. Now, having said that, let me tell you this. God has the sovereign right to say no. And anybody who tells you differently isn't reading the Bible. Not reading this one. I'll just give you a couple of examples of of that from the book of Acts. How about James and Peter? They were both arrested by the Herodian dynasty. They were both put under arrest. What happened to James? His arrest ended in his death, his martyrdom for the faith. What happened to Peter? An angel came and miraculously delivered him, and Peter preached for three more decades for the gospel. Who made that decision? God. That's who. What about uh, uh, Stephen? Remember Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit and power? What happens to him? He gets stoned. Who is there watching his stoning and giving giving, uh, assent to it? Paul is what the rabbis would call the flagger. Right? So in rabbinic literature, you put your coats or your outer cloak at the feet of the flagger. And if the flagger crumples the flag or the white flag in his hand, that means don't stone him. If the flagger drops the flag, it means I affirm this, stone him. And what does it say? Paul was there giving his consent. He was the flagger. And so they stone Stephen. And then what happens to Paul? A couple chapters later, he gets radically converted to Jesus. He spends the next 35 years of his life taking the gospel to every corner of the Roman Empire. In Acts chapter 28, he gets an opportunity to preach it to Caesar himself. Who made that choice? Stephen died early. Paul didn't. God. So just because you are in a position right now where you feel like, man, this delay feels like a denial, it doesn't mean it is. God's answer for you may still be on the horizon, and that answer may be gloriously, yes, I am giving you what you asked me for. But if the answer is not yet or no, we settle for that too, because God is the sovereign king of the universe. So the first thing we learn here is this. Now, what Jesus wants to teach them here is is this. It's so funny that he says, our brother Lazarus is asleep, and I am going to wake him up. And these guys, they're sharp. They're just like, uh, well, let them sleep. And so Jesus is trying to show them that when a person is dead, this is what he is going to show them. When a person is dead, they're as good as asleep. Because it is no more difficult for him to uh, raise the dead than it is for him to wake a sleeping guy. 
That's what he's trying to show them. He's trying to help them to see that's the kind of power he has. Act two, the reassurance. Act two is the reassurance. What do we learn here? Well, we learn uh, that Jesus does return, and it's, it's four days. He's been in that tomb for four days. Now, Jesus does not come all the way into Bethany. He's just on the outskirts of town, and Martha gets wind of this. Now, Mary stays back. Martha runs out to him. Martha runs out to him to greet him. And she is just beside herself. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if he had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I, well, I know he will rise again at the resurrection. This was the hope of the Jews, by the way. This is what they thought was eternal life. They believed that a person, when they died, went off to paradise with Abraham and the saints. But their hope was God raising the dead bodily at the end of the age. That was their hope. And so what is she saying? I believe that. I believe that doctrine. She goes, I know my brother will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And, and the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Now, the key to this section, this reassurance, is her statement, I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And what is Jesus' response to that faith? I don't have to ask. <laughs> I don't have to ask. I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is in me. As a matter of fact, when Jesus does go to raise uh, Lazarus, he goes to raise Lazarus, and he stands there. And in verses 41 and 42, Jesus says, he prays out loud. And what does he say? Father, I know that you always hear me, and I always hear you. In other words, our will is perfectly in sync, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I'm not praying for my benefit. I'm praying for theirs. What is he saying? I don't even need to pray. Jesus performs what we call legislative Legislative miracles. Jesus has legislative miracle working power. When he speaks, it is done. You never see Jesus saying, oh God, please just deliver this person from the devil. He doesn't do that. He speaks the word and it is done because his will is perfectly in sync with the Father. And so his answer is not to say God is going to meet your need. His answer is to say, I am God meeting your need. I am the resurrection and the life. Act 3. Resurrection power. Resurrection power. So she goes back and tells her sister, Mary, the teacher, the rabbi, is here. He's here. He's on the outskirts of town, but he's here. Now, what does Mary do? Mary gets up and runs out to meet Jesus. Now, the crowd, just so you know who the crowd uh, is, the crowd people are the townsfolk people, right? And so according to rabbinic law, you had to practice what was called sympathetic mourning. Sympathetic mourning is when a person, a Jew in your town is mourning. They mourn for six days. They wait until the fourth day to see if that person is uh, resuscitated. But they mourn for six days. And then the townsfolk, people who live close, right in their neighborhood, they come and they sympathetically mourn and wail. 
And they may not have known the person very well, but they feel obligated, according to piety laws, to come and wail out loud, oh! Now her, her uh, suffering is real. Her tears are real. And I can imagine when she gets and she sees Jesus about 100 yards away, she just bursts into tears. And the people behind her who are following her, they are also wailing out loud. And it says in the text that Jesus was deeply stirred. Look at what it says here in verse 33. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now the phrase deeply moved and troubled in the Greek means angrily agitated. Angrily agitated. What's he agitated about? He's not mad at them. He's not agitated or frustrated by these people. Jesus is certainly not frustrated by Mary or their family. Jesus is frustrated and agitated at sin, the ravages of sin. Because what does sin do? Sin interrupts God's project with the human being. When sin enters the picture, it en- death enters the picture, and God never made us to die. He made us that we may live and enjoy him forever. And that is what is so stirring him, frustrating him, agitating him, because this wasn't supposed to be this way. His best friend, Eleazar, is not supposed to be in the grave. He's supposed to be living with God in his body for eternity, and he's supposed to be enjoying the presence of God forever. But sin has interrupted that. And so, and so they say, uh, he says, where have you laid him? He asked Come and see, Lord, they replied. Now, verse 35, it says Jesus wept. The word for wept, wept here is the word weep in Greek. In Greek, that word means to weep aloud, to weep visibly so that others can see it. So now the scene is set. He is at the tomb. They are leading him to the tomb. And you, can you see this scene? The crowd is wailing. The family is crying through their eyelids, tears streaming down their faith and, face, and Jesus is crying as well. 38, it says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, By this time there is a a foul stench, a bad odor, for he has been there for days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now think for a second from Lazarus' point of view. I have no idea where he is. I don't know. Uh, Luke chapter 16 seems to teach that he's probably in paradise with the other Old Testament saints. And so there, uh, there's a character named Lazarus, and he's in the bosom of Abraham, and that means that he's reclining at Abraham's table. Uh, because that's what you do. You sit on a low table, you sit on your cushion, and you recline sort of into the space of someone else while you eat. That's what it means. It means to recline into their bosom. And so the whole picture that Jesus is drawing there in Luke chapter 16 seems to make it clear that uh, Lazarus, or at least that Lazarus, is alive after his death, and so is the rich man. And they are consciously aware of their life, of their existence, of their thoughts. 
And now can you imagine wherever he is in this, Jesus calls it paradise, but in this holding place with all the other saints, can you imagine him talking with Moses and, and Abraham and other saints and other people, maybe his dad or his mom, and all of a sudden he hears the voice of his friend Yeshua, Jesus, reverberating around the halls of paradise, calling him back to his body. And just like that, he is back in his body. And when he opens his eyes, all he can see is the white strips, the linen strips that cover his face because they have wrapped him up like a mummy. And so what we learn from the story is this, is that Jesus has the power to raise the man back from the dead. So verse 44 says, The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face, so he can't see anything. He's just trying to follow the light. This little man comes shuffling out in his grave clothes, and Jesus says, Take his grave clothes off, let him go. And then what is the summary? It's in verses 45 to 47. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did. They believed in Jesus. But some of them went back and reported him to the Pharisees. And they told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting. Calling a meeting about Jesus with the Sanhedrin. We've got to do something about this man. And so, so many people now are turning to faith in Jesus and the ruling council of Israel, the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees meet together to say, we must put a stop to this man. And so they began to plot to kill him. And what you and I need to understand is that without Jesus' resurrection life, you and I are condemned to death forever. Death rules the day. Death is the order of the day without an intervening principle. Without an intervening principle. What are we talking about when we talk about biblical death? Well, in the Bible, there essentially are three kinds of death. The first one is, of course, physical death. Physical death is, of course, just the cessation of your bodily life. You don't live in your body anymore. Your soul, your spirit, whatever, your immaterial side doesn't live in your body anymore, and you can't function in this world anymore. Okay, that's physical death. That's usually just what we think of because we live in a very materialistic or uh, a sort of um, philosophically naturalist culture. Okay, so physical death. But there's also another kind of death that is very important in the Bible. It's social death, relational death. And this is where your life is cut off from the life of the society. This is where your life is cut off from the group. Now, you and I live in a weak group culture. Okay, We live in a very individualistic culture. They lived in a very strong group culture. Very strong. Okay, so you and I, if we lived in the ancient world, ancient Jews, if we were, we would not want to be cut off from the family. We would not want to be cut off from the life that is in the community. That's just the way they thought. And so this idea of relational or social estrangement is very important to them. If you talk to any modern Jews who were raised in an Orthodox or rabbinic Jewish home who have converted to become believers in Jesus the Messiah, God's son, they will tell you what this is like. I have a few of those friends. I have one friend who is Muslim, and he was raised in Islam. And the moment he became a believer in Jesus and embraced Christ as his Savior and his Lord, he was cut off. He was anathema. He was relationally dead to the family. This is a big deal. This is part of death. Another part of death is actually um, spiritual death. Spiritual death. 
So when sin enters the picture, it brings the judgment of death. And spiritual death is not the loss of your capacity for a relationship with God. It is the loss of your spiritual faculties to do so. So what it means is, is that just like a person in a wheelchair, you still have the capacity. You have the hardware. You have the bones and the ligaments and the muscle there. But there is a message from your brain to your legs that, are, that is just not getting through. You, you don't have the faculty of walking. And when you and I die spiritually, we are born into the world spiritually dead. You and I don't have a spiritual faculty because it's been deadened. It's been seared as with a hot iron And what the Holy Spirit does when he comes into our life is he restores all of this. He restores all of this. And all of this is brought about by sin, which has brought that separation. And death reigns and remains unless and until there's an intervening principle. Thousands of babies and moms were needlessly killed or died uh, in Austria and Vienna actually a hospital, the General Hospital of Vienna. And they could not figure out why these women, when they gave birth to children, were dying at such a high rate. And so what they did is uh, they appointed this young, smart doctor to oversee uh, that ward, and he came in, and his name was Ignaz Simmelweis. And this was way back, this is decades ago. And Ignaz Simmelweis came in, And what he discovered is he discovered that the midwives had a much better track record than the physicians did. So the physicians had a much higher incident of what's called postpartum fever. The people, the babies that they uh, brought into the world or that they delivered into the world, the moms and the children would die of postpartum fever. But the midwives, not so much. So he figured there's got to be a reason here. So he watched both of them. He watched them and determined that there's no appreciable difference between the way the midwives uh, bring kids into the world and the way the the physicians are doing it. There's no difference really. So then he decided to observe what the physicians and the scientists were doing during the day. And it turns out that what they did all day long is they would do these autopsies of cadavers without gloves on And many of these people have died from the plague or some illness, and they were trying to discover the reason or the cause for these people's deaths. They would never sterilize their instruments, and then they would be called to the maternity ward and have to run off and deliver babies. Now, that's unimaginable in our time. But but at the time, Ignaz Semmelweis, he just looked at that and went, huh, that doesn't seem right. (laughs) And here's what he theorized. He hypothesized that there were small particles of death that were being transferred from the cadavers by the doctors to the women and their children. And the scientific community at the time laughed at him. They said, what are you, a joker? He goes, no, no, I I can prove it. So he went and he got all those physicians together and he said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to sterilize your instruments at the end of your shift every time, every day. Wow. And then he said this, he said, before you handle a woman and her baby, you are going to wash your hands for 20 to 30 minutes. You're going to wash your hands in this new thing called soap. And they did. And predictably, the incidence of death by postpartum fever went down to the midwife's level. It was equal to the midwife's level. In other words, he, he cured it. And he found out, Eureka, hand washing saves the world. 
And what they discovered, and then in 18-something, uh, 1846, uh, Louis Pasteur comes along and actually shows that, yes, there are little particles of death. They're called germs. They're called germs, and they discovered germs and vindicated him and proved him to be right. And here's what they found, is that death reigns until and unless an intervening principle can be found. And the same is true for you and I. The same is true in our lives just living in this world, death reigns. Death reigns in our thoughts, death reigns in our body, death reigns in our relationship. It reigns until and unless an intervening principle can be found, and it has been. It's Jesus' death and resurrection. And when Jesus comes along and says, I am the resurrection and the life, I'm the one who's going to give you life, he means it. He means he is going to cure you of the thing that's been killing you and separating us from God. And so now we have spiritual life in place of spiritual death, a spiritually deadened heart. We have relational life. As a result, we are relationally restored in Christ. And we have physical life. We have the hope of a brand new body, a brand new body that will never die again. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. He says, in one moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will raise imperishable and we shall be changed. What is he saying? That entire chapter is about God's promise to you and to I, to us, about a brand new resurrected body. Not only does God restore us spiritually in this life with eternal everlasting life, not only does he reconcile us back to right relationship with him and put us in alignment where we ought to be, the creature, not the creator, the worshiper, not the one worshiped, He puts us back into right relationship with God the Father, and then he promises us at the end of the age, whatever body went into the ground, perishable is going to come out of that ground in the resurrection, impervious to sin and temptation and sickness. Are you excited about that? I got bad news for you. Uh, Cancer or heart disease or a car accident or Alzheimer's or something is going to get you. Oh, you can, you can fight off death for as long as you can. Uh, Dr. Rick Lum preached this yesterday at, uh, at, at the funeral that we did in this room yesterday for Eric Peterson. Essentially what Dr. Rick said is, you know, death is our enemy and we can fight it off. We can stave it off as long as we can. But in the end, it's going to get you. You're going to lose that battle. You're going to lose that fight. What's your hope? If your hope is in this life alone, you are hopeless. But if our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus, because of what Christ has done in his life, that he breathes on us by the Holy Spirit, you and I will live forever with him. Look, you're going to die soon or you're going to die later, but you're going to die. And what Jesus says is this. Here's, Here's the remarkable truth, is that anyone who believes in him, the one that God has sent, the one the Father has sent, whoever believes in him, Even though he die, yet shall he live. And I'll go one better, Jesus says. You will never die. The moment you close your eyes for the last time in this decrepit old body, you will open your eyes spiritually to the high beams and glories of heaven, and you will feel more alive in that moment than you ever have. And that's the promise. That's the promise that God has for us today. And it's all because of what Jesus has done on the cross. I'll tell you one last story to close. Story, a little boy was in the truck with his dad. And they were driving somewhere and they had just pulled out of the driveway and he had his window 
uh, about halfway down and a bee flew in and landed right on the dashboard. And the little boy tensed up because he was deathly allergic to bees. I, I have a friend who's like that. Some of you may be like that. My friend has to take an EpiPen wherever she goes just in case she gets stung with a bee because if she doesn't get that pen, she'll die. And this little boy knew that and he tensed up and the look of fear and terror on his face and he was shaking and his dad, just like that, reached over and hit that bee on that dash and just held his hand there for about 20 seconds. And then when he pulled his hand away, that bee was just kind of like a drunk guy out of a bar, man. Like he just got, the, got his bell rung. And the little boy said, Daddy, it's still alive. And he said, it doesn't matter. I took the stinger. And he showed him his hand, and the stinger was sitting right there in the palm of Dad's hand. And he said, so you don't have to worry anymore. So he got a cup, and he took the bee, and he let him out the window. And the same is true for you and I. The same is true for you and I. You and I do not have to fear death anymore. The scripture says, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? You don't have any. Because Christ has taken it. Christ has won the victory and he has taken the sting of death and in exchange given the believer new life. You believe that? I hope you do. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you. Thank you for your word. It's so life-giving. It's so encouraging. It's so inspiring. Thank you for the story of Lazarus which which shows us in three simple acts the power of your resurrected life. God, we confess what is true about us this morning. You're sitting here, you join me right now. You confess what is true. God, we're sinners. And without you, without Christ, we are lost forever. And we need the salvation and the life that Christ brings because until we have it, death reigns. Death is the order of the day and we'll be separated from you forever. And God, we also, we need your help. We don't, we don't just want to confess our sins, but we need your salvation. Would you give us that salvation? And Lord, having given us that salvation, would you pour out the Holy Spirit on us uh, that we may live in this resurrected life that you have given us. God, every one of us are gonna die, and we know it. We're gonna pass away from something. But in that moment, Lord, if we have trusted and believed in you, the one and only, in that moment, we will experience a new life like we could not imagine, like we could not dream. And we want it, Lord. We want to be sure. And if you're here this morning, be sure. Don't leave before you're sure. In Jesus' name, amen.